the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. In our second hour, we'll hear from Donald Critchlow. He's the author of Revolutionary Monsters. Five Men Who Turned Liberation into Tyranny. The book is published by Regnery History. And we'll reflect back on a letter that Ronald Reagan wrote back in 1976. It was a letter to the future. And it is surprisingly, it's rather uncanny, relevant today. We'll talk about that in the five o'clock hour as well. But first, we'll start with some of the headline news. I just noted that former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter is dead at age 68. Uh, He died Monday from a heart attack, um, his family said in a statement. He was appointed by President Barack Obama. He became the 25th person to hold that position, serving from February of 2015 until January of 2017. He oversaw a pretty tumultuous time for the Department of Defense. He played a hand in winding down the American involvement in Afghanistan. He advocated for dealing a lasting defeat against the Islamic State or ISIS. Uh, The latter issue, Carter often referred to as one of the defining issues of my time as secretary. During his tenure, he sought to implement widespread reforms across the military. Notably, he announced the lifting of job restrictions, excluding female personnel from combat positions. And he also removed the ban barring transgender people from serving in the military, though this was ultimately rolled back shortly thereafter during the Trump administration. Again, the former Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter, is dead at 68. Well, in a dangerous alliance, Iran and Venezuela are strengthening um, uh, the economic and military ties with Russia in a challenge to the U.S. And one of the worst case um, uh, cases, rather, a woman was rescued from human trafficking. It was a scheme after paying to uh, cross into the U.S. illegally. And apparently this is not uh, uncommon. Flipping the script, the view panel erupted on Senator Ted Cruz, the Republican from Texas on Monday, after he confronted the hosts about election deniers and political violence on the left. And shocking statistics, the White House and top Democrats are silent on historic migrant deaths, while the GOP blames the president and vows action at the southern border following the midterm elections, should they should the outcome be favorable to them. Well, finding common ground, Muslim Americans are united with conservatives over the politicization of America's schools. And Selective Slant, a new study, finds ABC, CBS, NBC are more likely to bash GOP governors than the Biden administration when covering the border crisis. Well, inviting foreign observers, MSNBC's Nicole Wallace, she asks if foreign countries should monitor U.S. midterm elections. Adding up, MSNBC's obsession with fascism is being blasted as a constant fear-mongering as the network used and is using the term 1,614 times already in 2022. Well, the bias is undeniable. Google apparently manipulated search engine results against Republicans, the Media Research Center says. You can read more on their website. 
And Tucker Carlson points out that the media has done everything it can to minimize the economy and crime despite the fact that for most voters across the country, those are the top issues. Going down, uh, tourists were uh, stuck 200 feet underground after an elevator broke. They were apparently uh, brought up those 200 feet by other means earlier today. Well, the GOP is gaining ground in key gubernatorial races. The Daily Wire reports that Nevada Democratic Governor Steve Sisolak is uh, trailing his GOP opponent by nearly six points in a new Insider Advantage American Greatness poll almost two weeks out from the election. Uh, Sisolak has struggled to overcome significant uh, headwinds in the final weeks of his campaign for re-election. Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo, his Republican opponent, has run uh, even with a beat with or beaten Sisolak in every poll since August, according to a tracker at 538. The election analysis outlet has Lombardo leading Sislak 46% to 44.4% in its polling average. The poll measured Lombardo's support at 48.5% and the incumbent at 42.8%. Just the News reports that the Michigan GOP gubernatorial nominee Tudor Dixon is now tied with Democrat incumbent Governor Gretchen Whitmer, less than three weeks before Election Day, according to a new poll. The Michigan News Source Trafalgar poll, released on Sunday, shows Dixon with 47.9% of the vote compared to 48.4% for Gretchen Widmer. A new poll shows Republicans believe Ron DeSantis has more influence over the GOP than former President Donald Trump, who announced just yesterday he just might have to run again. The Washington Examiner reports that more Republicans believe Florida Governor Ron DeSantis should have a great deal of influence over the party compared to former President Donald Trump, highlighting a seeming shift in loyalty ahead of the 2024 presidential election. About 72 percent of Republican voters say DeSantis should have a great deal or good amount of influence over the party's direction compared to 64 percent who said the same about the former president. According to a recent ABC News Ipsos poll, Democrats have a more expansive pool of politicians that uh, they want to have an influence over the party, with 81 percent wanting former President Barack Obama guiding the party, followed by President Joe Biden at 69 percent, Vice President Kamala Harris at 65 percent, Bernie Sanders, the Massachusetts, I should say, and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, and New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that's 56 percent. Well, polling shows Republicans are making strides in three vital swing states. But again, until ballots are actually cast and counted, we don't know the outcome. These are speculative at best. The Washington Examiner reports that with the midterm home stretch underway, Republicans appear to have a momentum on their side in their quest to flip the Senate as three states move in their direction in a key forecast. Real Clear Politics Senate projection recently moved three battleground Senate races to the GOP in Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada. Meanwhile, 55-8 has tightened its projections for the Senate amid a deluge of polling showing the Republicans gaining ground. Uh, 538 gives Republicans a 45 percent chance of winning the Senate, which diverges from Real Clear Politics projection that the GOP will secure a 53-47 seat majority in the lower chamber. Both forecasts project that Republicans are favored to win in the House. Given the 50-50 split in the Senate, the GOP only needs to win one seat to secure the upper chamber. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, a conversation with Donald Critchlow, Revolutionary Monsters, the title of his book. We'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'd like to invite you to discover the Jewish Jesus, God's seven holy days on True Talk 800 AM. Our sister station is launching Discovering the Jewish Jesus, God's Seven Holy Days. You can visit truetalk800.com to request your free download of God's Seven Holy Days. It's a comprehensive guide to understanding the fall holy days and how Jesus fulfills them. You can learn how the seven holy days of the Old Testament relate to Jesus and what they mean for you today. Discover the Jewish Jesus. It airs at 1030 AM weekday mornings and again at 9 p.m. on True Talk 800 AM. Well, the John Fetterman campaign sent a memo to reporters stating a debate stage uh, is not his format, lowering expectations. He is the candidate, uh, of course, who had a stroke recently, but has soldiered on. Well, the campaign behind the Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman's bid for the Senate admitted on Monday that expectations for the Democratic nominee are low as he prepares to debate his Republican rival, Dr. Mehmet Oz. In an email to reporters, the Fetterman campaign acknowledged that this isn't John's format, arguing that Oz has a distinct advantage because of his career as a television host. Well, Town Hall weighs in. The ultimate momentum has come in the past few days with one Fox 29 insider advantage poll showing the candidates tied and another poll with WIC insights even showing Dr. Oz ahead. The poll shows Dr. Oz leading with 49.1 percent of the vote among likely voters compared to Fetterman's 44.6 percent. A WIC insights uh, poll uh, says that Oz has 49.1 percent and Fetterman 44.6 as well. Arizona Democratic candidate Katie Hobbs has run away from debating Carrie Lake. This is in Arizona. The Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake is again slamming her opponent and Secretary of State Katie Hobbs after she refused to show up for a long-held debate on Sunday evening. Earlier in the day, Hobbs was pressed by reporters about why she refused to get on the debate stage and explain her positions to the voters. Hobbs bumbled through her answers, claiming she's doing enough to get her message out through interviews. Well, Carrie Lake says, as you can see, this is at the debate stage, uh, Katie Hobbs did not attend the uh, debate today. In doing so, Katie put a permanent end to a 20-year tradition that was so loved by the people of Arizona. Katie Hobbs is a debate denier and a coward, end quote. Well, the Trafalgar Group has um, Katie Lake at 49.2%, Katie Hobbs 46.4%. Well, the New York uh, Democratic uh, Campaign Committee chair Sean Patrick Maloney's election prediction is being rebranded as a toss up. Meanwhile, Democrats have increased spending by six hundred thousand dollars, which isn't unusual at this late stage of the game. Democrats are hurling money into unexpected close races to save one of their key leaders. Town Hall reports that Monday's rating change for A Cook political report brought a devastating blow to Representative Sean Patrick Maloney as he's currently chairing the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. The rating, once uh, lean Democratic, is now at toss-up in Representative Maloney's race against his Republican opponent, Assemblyman Michael Lawler. Dave Wasserman says, but two weeks out from the election day, Maloney finds himself in deeper danger, simultaneously fighting for his political life in his Hudson Valley seat and desperately trying to prevent Democrats from being swept out of the House majority. Politico weighs in saying the Maloney run Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee will spend just over six hundred thousand dollars on air cover for him starting Tuesday as he battles challenger Michael Lawler in a more uh, competitive than expected race. 
That money is on top of $110,000 in support on TV from another outside group. On the Governor DeSantis-Charlie Crist debate, well, the Washington Examiner says that Governor DeSantis and Charlie Crist uh, slugged it out on in Florida's sole gubernatorial debate, hitting one another on everything from the economy to the pandemic to social issues that have roiled the state. Town Hall says that Governor DeSantis on uh, whether or not he's running for president in 2024. I know that Charlie is interested in talking about 2024 and Joe Biden, but I just want to make things very, very clear. The only worn out old donkey I'm looking to put out to pasture is Charlie Crist. Close quote. Mm, getting a little ugly on the campaign trail. Journalist Scott Moorfield says Charlie Crist apparently sent Florida Governor Ron DeSantis a letter in July of 2020 demanding a statewide COVID lockdown. The best decision of DeSantis' political career was ignoring that letter, and he's reaping the political fruits now. But of course, we won't know the outcome until Election Day. Well, the majority of the $122 billion allocated to opening schools has gone unused. The Washington Post writes that in March of 2021, the administration released the federal government's largest pool of pandemic relief for public schools. The American Rescue Plan infused campuses with $122 billion to reopen buildings, address mental health needs, and help students who had fallen behind academically. The need was so urgent that two-thirds of the money, $81 billion, was released less than two weeks after the plan was signed into law and before the Education Department could approve each state's spending plan. But despite having access to the dollars, school systems throughout the country reported spending less than 15% of the federal funding during the 21-22 school year. That may be a good thing. I'm not entirely sure. Well, Russia is accusing Ukraine of planning to utilize a dirty bomb. But the West fears another false flag operation. The United States warned on Monday there would be severe consequences if Russia used a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, as Western countries accused Moscow of plotting to escalate the war in the pre- on the pretext, rather, that Kiev was planning to deploy a dirty bomb laced with nuclear materials. When Ukrainian forces advanced uh, into Russian-occupied Kherson province, top Russian officials they phoned Western counterparts on Sunday and Monday to tell them of Moscow's suspicions. Russia plans to raise the issue at the U.N. Security Council on Tuesday, according to diplomats. Of course, that's without evidence. The foreign ministers of France, Britain and the United States rejected the allegations and reaffirmed their support for Ukraine. NBC reported that Ukraine and its allies have vociferously rejected the Russian accusations, um, countering that, in fact, the Kremlin's public claims suggest It's seeking to build a pretext for an escalation and may be planning a false flag operation in which it blames Kiev for its own actions. Uh, Rishi Sunak has become the new UK prime minister. The United Kingdom's 42-year-old former chief treasurer became the nation's newest prime minister on Tuesday and the first uh, Brit of Indian descent to serve in the UK's highest office. Uh, Sunak uh, takes uh, over after the uh, short and tumultuous term of Liz Truss. He has the unenviable uh, task of pulling the U.K. out of an economic downturn while also seeking to pull together a conservative party that's begun to fracture over divergent agendas, much of it tied to political disagreements over Brexit. In taking over number 10 Downing Street, Sunak stated, I will place economic stability and confidence at the heart of this government's agenda. This will mean difficult decisions to come. He opposed Truss's economic moves that 
proved to send the British pound tanking and the market spending. But he's not blameless. As the Wall Street Journal editorial board put it, he now gets to to manage the economy he helped to break. Sunak rose to the prime minister position after two other conservative candidates pulled out of the running. He promised to unite the country and run a government that will have integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level. He added, trust is earned and I will earn yours, end quote. Another Christian baker has won. A judge in California finally ruled in favor of Christian cake baker Kathy Miller, who was sued by the state's Department of Fair Housing and Employment over her refusal to bake a specialty cake for a same-sex wedding in 2017. Miller had offered to sell the couple a pre-made cake, but refused to use her artistic skills to make a specialty cake for the same-sex ceremony, arguing that to do so would go against her sincerely held religious faith and her conscience. Judge Eric Bradshaw noted in his ruling that the state infringed on Miller's freedom to follow her religious beliefs. One of Miller's attorneys, Charles Lamandry of the Thomas More Society, praised the court's decision, saying the freedom to practice one's religion is enshrined in the First Amendment, he said, and the United States Supreme Court has long upheld the freedom of artistic expression. Another of Miller's lawyers, uh, Paul Jana, observed that the state, which cited the 1959 UNRWA Civil Rights Act, When raising the lawsuit against Miller, ironically used a law intended to protect individuals from religious discrimination to discriminate against Kathy for her religious beliefs. Well, this is a big win for religious freedom and artistic freedom. No one has the right to compel the speech of others. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to invite you to the Pastor Appreciation Breakfast at KPDQ. We want to honor and thank our amazing local pastors, ministry leaders, and spouses for their faithful service at the Pastor's Appreciation Breakfast. It's Thursday, November 3rd, 8 a.m. at the Embassy Suites Portland Airport. It includes a fabulous breakfast, fellowship. We're going to provide some worship music and an uplifting message from Pastor Alan Jackson. The event is absolutely free, but space is limited and you need to uh, make reservations. So reserve your spot today and spread the word so you can uh, we get the opportunity to honor you as um, and many uh, church leaders as possible. Get all the information at KPDQ. Well, a judge struck down the Michigan Secretary of State's restrictions on poll challengers. You can read more about that in The Federalist. And President Biden's wingman, Merrick Garland, is set to announce a probe of homegrown election infrastructure threats. Well, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas on Monday temporarily blocked Senator Lindsey Graham's testimony to a special grand jury investigating whether then-President Donald Trump and, uh, Trump rather, and others illegally tried to influence the 2020 election in the state. Thomas's order is intended to prevent Fannie Willis, Fulton County District Attorney, from compelling Graham to testify while the Supreme Court weighs the senator's request for a lengthier halt to the proceedings. Willis has a deadline Thursday to tell the high court why Graham should have to answer the grand jury's questions. Lower courts have ruled that his testimony can take place. According to Hylia police, there is no indication of political motive in the attack of the Marco Rubio canvasser. Now, he was uh, seriously injured, was wearing a Marco Rubio shirt, but apparently there was no political uh, motive whatsoever. It seems rather puzzling, but there may be more to that story. Senators are confronting PayPal on misinformation policies, and social media allows jihadists to call for violence and spread hate. No censorship there. 
The Department of Justice is changing Chinese spies, rather charging Chinese spies with obstructing the Huawei investigation. And Brittany Griner's nine-year prison sentence in Russia? Well, it's been upheld. My guess is negotiations are ongoing, but it was a, a blow. Former Defense Secretary Ash Carter has died. He was 68. Well, on this day in history, 1400, Geoffrey Chaucer, the father of English literature, dies in London. 1760, a little closer to now, King George III of Britain is crowned. 1910, America the Beautiful, with words by Catherine Lee Bates and music by Samuel A. Ward, is first published. 1917, the Bolsheviks under Vladimir Ilyich Lenin seize power in Russia. 1929, Albert B. Fall, who was U.S. Secretary of the Interior under President Harding, is found guilty of taking a bribe. He sentenced to a year in prison and fined $100,000, which at that time was astronomical. I mean, it still is today, but you get the idea. 1954, the U.S. Cabinet meeting is televised for the first time. 1955, the microwave oven for home use is introduced by the Tappan Company. We just take a moment and thank the Tappan Company. 1962, John Steinbeck is awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. 1964, Minnesota Vikings defensive end Jim Marshall recovers a fumble and runs 66 yards the wrong way into his own end zone for a safety. Despite the gaffe, the Vikings defeat the San Francisco 49ers 27-22. I was a very young kid in 64, and I remember it well. 1971, the United Nations recognizes the Communist People's Republic of China and expels the nationalist Chinese government of Taiwan. 1983, U.S. troops and soldiers from six Caribbean nations invade Grenada to restore order and provide protections to U.S. citizens after a recent coup with Grenada's communist pro-Cuban government. 1944, Susan Smith of South Carolina claims that a black carjacker drove off with her two young sons. Smith would confess to drowning the children in John D. Long Lake and be convicted of murder. This is a common scapegoat. Two black men or one black man. 2000, AT&T Corporation announces it will restructure into four separately traded companies, consumer, business, broadband, and wireless. 2001, the U.S. Senate sends President Bush the USA Patriot Act a package of anti-terror measures giving policy sweeping new powers, or rather police sweeping new powers, to search people's homes and business records secretly and to eavesdrop on telephone and computer conversations. And finally, on this day in history, 2014, the World Health Organization says more than 10,000 people have been infected with Ebola and that nearly half have died. Well, at least six people were rushed to hospital with various injuries following the St. Louis high school shooting. Orlando Harris, the now deceased suspect in Monday's high school shooting, used an AR-15 style rifle and brought more than 600 rounds of ammunition to the attack. Police announced today authorities also recovered a notebook in which Harris, 19, had written about his desire to carry out a school shooting. His attack on the Central Visual and Performing Arts High School killed two victims, a female student and her teacher, and injured seven others. The suspect, in addition to the rifle, brought in a large quantity of ammunition, according to the police chief, Michael Sack, on Tuesday in the press conference. He had seven magazines of ammunition on a chest rig he wore. He also had an additional eight magazines of ammunition in a field bag he carried. Harris also placed further magazines full of ammunition in hallways and stairways just prior to his attack. 
The chief of police added that the FBI investigators had uncovered a handwritten document inside his vehicle in the school parking lot. He wrote about his desire to engage in this incident to conduct a school shooting. The the police chief said before reading a portion of the notebook, he wrote, uh, quote, I don't have any friends. I don't have any family. I've never had a girlfriend. I've never had a social life. I've been an isolated loner my entire life. This was the perfect storm for a mass shooter, end quote. This is a very sad picture uh, painted here by the individual. One wonders what might have occurred during his younger years that could have changed that scenario. Not to suggest he's not responsible for his actions, but it is a, a tragic series of events. The police chief uh, said that there was um, there were no updates regarding the injured victims who remain in hospital. Officers received a call at about 9:10 a.m. about an active shooter at the high school on Monday morning. Within minutes, authorities arrived. They entered the school as students were fleeing the building. Uh, the police chief said during the press conference, upon hearing gunfire, they ran to that gunfire, located the shooter, and engaged that shooter in an exchange of gunfire, the chief told reporters. Senator Josh Hawley, the Republican from Missouri, representing that area, praised the swift response of local law enforcement in a statement saying, devastating news in St. Louis, my office is in contact with local authorities and we stand ready to offer all assistance possible. Now, we say it's a great relief to know that this law enforcement uh, team responded immediately. But when you think about what they were responding to, the risks they took for the sake of these uh, these teenagers, we really need to commend them and support those who are willing to put themselves in a position such as this for the sake of people they may not have even known. Excuse me. The New York State Supreme Court has ordered New York City to rehire and pay back wages to government employees who were fired for refusing to get vaccinated against COVID-19. Well, David Choshki, the city's health commissioner, issued an order in October requiring all city employees, this is October of last year, to be inoculated. We'll tell you more about it when we return after the break here on The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next hour, a conversation with Donald Critchlow, author of Revolutionary Monsters, Five Men Who Turned Liberation into Tyranny, a Regnery History book. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the New York State Supreme Court has ordered New York City to rehire and pay back wages to government employees who were fired for refusing to get vaccinated against COVID-19. Well, the city's health commissioner issued an order back in October of 21 requiring all city employees to be inoculated against the virus. Well, later he issued a similar order for private sector employees. Mayor Eric Adams signed a supplementary executive order to that later mandate, carving out exemptions for athletes, musicians and other performers. While the court deemed both uh, Chotsky's and Adams orders arbitrary and capricious, while also finding that uh, Chotsky's um, violation was against the New York State Constitution. He wrote, the health commissioner cannot create a new condition of employment for city employees, cannot prohibit an employee from reporting to work and cannot terminate employees. The mayor cannot exempt certain employees from these orders, read the opinion, which was uh, authored by Judge Ralph Porzo. Porzio. Uh, he noted that vaccination against COVID-19 does not prevent transmission of the disease, but noted that the decision is not a commentary on the efficacy of vaccination. 
If um, if it was about safety and public health, no one would be exempt. It's time for the city of New York to do what is right and what is just, concluded the judge. Well, the city has already filed an appeal, according to a spokesperson for the law department, who said that the city strongly disagrees with this ruling as the mandate is firmly grounded in law and is critical to New Yorkers public health. So that will be an interesting case to uh, to watch. Again, it's uh, based on the New York City uh, Constitution or the New York State Constitution. Meanwhile, an appeals court panel has ruled that David Delayden and other pro-life activists have to pay $2.1 million a judgment to Planned Parenthood Federation of America for carrying out an undercover investigation and secretly filming abortion providers discussing the harvesting of baby body parts. It's interesting that there's more concern about how the information was um, was gained than the actual information itself but at issue in the litigation was the pro-life activists use of fake ids and their recording of conversations that were meant to be confidential which a lower court concluded violated various laws including conspiracy breach of contracts conspiracy fraud fraudulent and unlawful business practices trespass rico and various federal and state wiretapping laws so it was serious. In a unanimous decision released last Friday, the three-judge panel of the United States Courts of Appeal for the Ninth Circuit mostly upheld a lower court ruling against the pro-life activists who also described themselves as citizen journalists. Well, Circuit Judge Ronald Gould authored the uh, panel opinion rejecting the arguments of the pro-life group that their actions were protected by the First Amendment and journalistic practices. Invoking journalism and the First Amendment does not shield individuals from liability for violations of laws applicable to all members of society. None of the law's appellants violated was aimed specifically at journalists or those holding a particular viewpoint, the judge wrote. He went on to write, the two categories of uh, compensatory damages permitted by the district court Infiltration damages and security damages were awarded by the jury to reimburse Planned Parenthood for losses caused by appellants' violations of generally applicable laws, end quote. Well, Gould also argued that the panel decision does not impose a new burden on journalists or undercover investigations using lawful means. From the beginning of their scheme, appellants engaged in illegal conduct, including forging signatures, creating and procuring fake driver's licenses, and breaching contracts that the jury found so objectionable as to award Planned Parenthood punitive damages. He continued, If affirming Planned Parenthood's compensatory damages from appellate's First Amendment challenge, we simply reaffirm the established principle that the pursuant, uh, the pursuit rather of journalism does not give a license to break laws of general applicability. Well, the judge did uh, did reserve uh, reverse rather the lower court decision, finding the pro-life activists guilty of violating the federal wiretap act, noting that it requires that the criminal or um, the purpose be independent of and separate from the purpose of the recording. Planned Parenthood runs afoul of this requirement by reusing the same criminal purpose, uh, furthering the, the civil RICO scheme to destroy Planned Parenthood as both the purpose of and the civil RICO claim and the independent criminal or torturous purpose, the judge went on to say. Well, in 2015, Delayden and uh, members of his group garnered national headlines when they released a series of undercover videos showing Planned Parenthood officials violating various laws, namely discussing the, the sale of aborted baby body parts, including organs, tissue and limbs. There was far less interest in those facts and those laws. 
For its part, Planned Parenthood and pro-choice activists have denied the CMP, the name of the group, uh, their claims, arguing that the videos were selectively edited and unlawfully recorded. However, the CMP released the full-length unedited videos when this story broke back in 2015, which were covered by the Christian Post and other news outlets. It did not change or alter the meaning of those exchanges. Well, Adidas has terminated its business collaboration with Kanye West, or Ye, over his uh, recent anti-Semitic remarks. The athletic brand said it will uh, no longer work with a famous rapper on their joint line of merchandise effective immediately. Adidas said in a statement Tuesday that it does not tolerate anti-Semitism and any other sort of hate speech, end quote. West's recent rant suggesting that Jewish industry leaders are conspiring against him in particular was unacceptable, hateful and dangerous, the company said. The comments violated the company's values of diversity and inclusion, mutual respect and fairness. Well, Yeezy's brand, which included a line of sneakers, will no longer be produced or sold by Adidas. Cash distributions to Yee and his uh, companies have been discontinued. Uh, Adidas is gearing uh, is geared for significant revenue loss due to the end of the partnership and Yeezy's uh, uh, deal generated an estimated two billion dollars a year, approximately 10 percent of the company's annual revenue. Morningstar analyst David Schwartz sold The Washington Post. Adidas said it expects its fourth quarter sales to be reduced by two hundred and forty six million dollars as a result of the decision. Other fashion brands, including uh, Vogue and um, Balenciago have also cut ties with West. West and Adidas have had a business arrangement since 2013, but not anymore. Well, on this date one year ago, Thomas Gallatin relayed the story of the Biden administration's attempt to paint angry parents at school board meetings as domestic terrorists. In collusion with the National School Boards Association, Attorney General Merrick Garland put the weight of the Social Justice Department behind this um, despicable attack on parents who were protesting leftist indoctrination in public schools. Well, today it's being reported on what Education Secretary Miguel Cardona admitted is the appalling and unacceptable failure of our nation's public schools during the pandemic. Parents should be angry. Well, the first post-pandemic result of the National Assessment of Education Progress are in, write the editors of National Review. And they show that pandemic-era school shutdowns and remote schooling did enormous damage to education of young people. Yes, that's true, but let's face it, government schools have been doing enormous damage to children for decades. Nate Jackson, writing on the subject, has more to say, but we're out of time. We've got news and traffic here at the top of the hour, and in the next hour, David Critchlow, author of Revolutionary Monsters, will also reflect on a, um, a letter that was written by then-President Reagan to the future. We'll be back. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest makes the point that Americans are being seduced by socialist and communist charlatans who are crying out for revolution in the name of liberation. They're teaching young Americans to praise the, the ferociously totalitarian regimes of Lenin, Mao, and Castro, and the youth are completely missing the truth about these regimes' deadly nature. Well, in his latest book, Revolutionary Monsters, Five Men Who Turned Liberation 
nation into tyranny, he offers in-depth biographies of five of the most popular modern-day revolutionaries, which is an odd phrase to say, the most popular modern-day revolutionaries whose ideologies killed millions. Well, these men came to power through the same message we hear today. The people must be liberated from their oppressors. Well, my next guest, Dr. Donald Critchlow is a widely published historian who leads the program in political history and leadership at Arizona State University and Revolutionary Monsters is his expert warning against the intoxicating power of revolutionary ideology. Once again, my guest is a university professor and author, and I'm just delighted to have you with us here today. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Critchlow. Well, please call me uh, Don. Thank you very much for having me. Well, this is such a timely and fascinating look at these uh, revolutionaries. It's a a word that we use quite often, but don't necessarily uh, understand some of the the revolutionaries that that give it substance. Uh, Talk a little bit about what motivated you at this moment to highlight these um, these few who are so often cited as examples of where we should go as a nation. Well, uh, this book, Revolutionary Monsters, was motivated more by just seeing uh, students wearing uh, Che Guevara T-shirts. I saw a poll that uh, of young people in America today, <coughs> excuse me, that 52% approved of uh, communism and socialism, 52%. Then I saw another poll that said that 20% of our youth thought that private property should be abolished and and all property owned by the state. So I thought we needed a wake-up call, and that's what Revolutionary Monsters is all about. Is it that these young people simply do not understand that history, their education is incomplete, or do they fully understand and embrace the figures that they cite as examples for where we ought to be headed? Well, there are a few that uh, romanticize uh, people like Che Guevara and Stil Castro. But in class the other day, uh, one student, a third-year history uh, major, uh, uh, told told the class that he had never heard that Poland had been uh, under communist uh, rule and that he had never heard of the uh, Berlin Wall. So we have a true, uh, uh, we have a few true believers in equity and social justice and that they we need to transform uh, America that's systemically uh, racist. But most of the students are uh, pretty ignorant of history in general. And I think that's a reflection of K-12 mm. education. Yeah, so that's absolutely. why the revolutionary monsters. You write in the introduction, the modern revolutionary mind is enraptured by millennialists' visions of a perfect society. Those who succumb the most to revolutionary logic take on a terrorist mentality. These revolutionary monsters assume the role of prophets acting in a corrupt world that cannot be reformed or bettered gradually. Heaven on earth arrives only through destruction of the existing world order. The modern revolutionary believes with um, fanatical conviction that the old order needs to be destroyed. Violence is necessary to fulfill the prophecy. Terror is an instrument for achieving and maintaining power. Now, the uh, revolutionaries that you highlight in the book, we would certainly nod our heads and agree that that is precisely what underlay their uh, seizure of power. Is that an apt description of some of the uh, millennial revolutionaries today uh, who have rejected the notion of private property and believe we ought to be uh, heading in a very different direction? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, groups like Antifa and uh, Black Lives Matter 
actually envisioning a, a new communist uh, society. In class, uh, since I'm speaking of students, uh, the semester before last or the year before uh, COVID, I guess, uh, two students came up to me after class and told me, shared with me that they were libertarian communists. Uh, yes, libertarian communists. Sounds like an oxymoron, yes. but it's, yeah, it's basically a belief that, you know, we could, they could create a new society, even though they may have, uh, they might have known that past communist uh, regimes have uh, failed. Yeah, every new experiment suggests if we just had more money, more time, and better leaders, the model would work for us uh, without recognizing the model is itself flawed. Once again, an excerpt from your introduction. In the 20th century, millions of people have died at the hands of revolutionary monsters who came into power, calling for the liberation of people from their oppressors. Mass murder within these revolutionary regimes was not a coincidence. Terror is instrumental to the modern revolutionary. Mass murder follows without apology. Terror is employed to maintain power within the regime and is used against the revolutionaries' internal and external enemies. The Islamic Republic is one example that you offer with the violence that we've witnessed over the last year and a half, maybe two years. Is this an example of an effort to establish through violence uh, and justify violence uh, to move us in a direction um, toward socialism, communism, however you want to describe it? Yes, a lot of uh, people, uh, I think, uh, even on uh, the Republican side, don't understand the uh, revolutionary uh, mind. It's one that seeks a perfect society and wants to begin, erase all history, and begin with the year uh, zero. And when I talk about uh, the, in the book, in in detail, it's a short book aimed for the uh, young people and and people that are concerned about America, I I talk about specifically about the kind of terrorism. Mao, for example, when he came to power, set a quota on local uh, cadre in the provinces on the number of uh, deaths that they needed to have. So that he put a quota of 1% to 2% in each province who needed to die of starvation or arrest and, uh, and execution. Similarly, uh, Mugabe in uh, Zimbabwe, uh, when he came to power, uh, used North Korean uh, tr- troops uh, train troops. Uh, they were Zim- they were uh, Zimbabweans uh, to attack a rival uh, tribe to commit uh, genocide and uh, rape the women and terrorize the people. And one last example, uh, Khomeinian is, which I discussed in Revolutionary Monsters, in his last uh, thirty days ordered the execution of thirty thousand political uh, prisoners. And that was carried out often by hanging them slowly for hours at a time. So we're talking about monsters who have uh, little repulsion against uh, against uh, genocide. Che Guevara is, uh, I should, I think, should be seen as a sociopath. He he liked killing and said as much. Yeah, I, I often see the T-shirts that you referenced a few moments ago and wonder, do you have any idea what that individual did and what he represented? And the answer, clearly, I would like to think, is no. Well, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the problems uh, rest in our educational yeah. Uh, system. Yeah, so I think, it's not think that history, right. history and civics are not being taught. It's a question of how they're being taught and who's teaching them. 
so they, you know, so history is taught, but it's all through a lens of social justice, whether it's racial justice or environmental justice or whatever. So major events like the fall of the Berlin Wall are not, uh, not discussed. There's a, a deliberate uh, dumbing down of our uh, youth to fill their uh, minds in a certain way that will allow them to support uh, transformation of our own uh, society. Yeah, well, ideas have consequences. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We're talking with uh, uh, Professor Donald Critchlow. He is the Katzen Family Professor at Arizona State University, the author of several books. He leads the program in political history and leadership at Arizona State University, a certificate program that provides students with a robust civic education. Oh, I just love the sound of it, the robust civic education. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with uh, Dr. Donald Critchlow. He is the Katzen Family Professor at Arizona State University and author of several books. He leads the program in political history and leadership at Arizona State University. We're talking about his uh, his latest book, Revolutionary Monsters, Five Men Who Turned Liberation into tyranny. Now we've touched on uh, some of these revolutionaries that you feature in the book, but who are the uh, the, the re- uh, revolutionary monsters that you um, uh, highlight in your book, and why did you choose these particular five modern revolutionaries? Well, I chose uh, Lenin, Mao, uh, Mugabe, and Castro, and uh, Khomeini because they represented fought, uh, different continents. So it shows how. Uh, how bad uh, things can happen and, uh, when these so-called liberators uh, take power. And uh, within each of them, we see uh, a pattern of, as you said, bad ideas do matter. Uh, what happened in all of these societies is the bad ideas began to infiltrate uh, the youth and the so-called intelligentsia uh, before the uh, revolutionary upheavals. So Lenin was, uh, by 1870, uh, all the Russian youth were reading Marxism. Similarly, uh, in Mao's pre-revolutionary China, by 1900, uh, my, my dog's barking, sorry. <laughs> she, she hates these uh, liberators. I'll put her in. Sorry about that. That's fine. We live in the real world. There are dogs there. Yeah, yeah well, I had her out. <laughs> anyway, um, and... Uh, so by 1900, the Chinese youth were reading Marxist Leninism, and similarly in Castro and Mugabe and Khomeini, they were reading uh, anti-Western, anti-imperialist, anti-colonial, and anti-American uh, writings. So bad ideas uh, matter, and they infiltrate in early in the revolutionary, uh, pre-revolutionary uh, eras. Similarly, what we also see is uh, the ruling uh, regimes. Uh, they see themselves as uh, corrupt, only concerned with uh, greed and power, and so they uh, they also uh, are prove unable to uh, really defend the society, their societies and their uh, regimes. And so, we're, I think we're seeing a similar pattern today. I'm not predicting political revolution, but we are but we are seeing a quiet revolution in which uh, many youth are being uh, persuaded by these views. And uh, a ruling elite that is uh, has lost uh, confidence in our own uh, foundational principles in American exceptionalism. 
we're seeing uh, revolutionaries approach the idea of jettisoning our, our history and institutions. Is there a common thread that runs through them? Do they have a common goal that ultimately uh, removing or disrupting uh, our, our current institutions and replacing it with a, a singular idea? Or is there a uh, lack of agreement even on that point? Well, I don't think there's a, a single uh, a single agenda that they're pursuing, uh, but I do think that uh, among uh, among the uh, ruling uh, leads today, there's a kind of a, there's a rejection of American uh, exceptionalism, mm-hmm. and so they're different than uh, the left was in previous uh, periods, uh, in that they're really rejecting uh, the very idea that the Constitution uh, was uh, was uh, something that was that, that actually liberated people, but it's seen as a social construction designed to uh, support white uh, privilege and, uh, and slavery. So uh, that's what we're seeing is a rejection of our very uh, foundational uh, principles. And I think that's very different than what we're seeing on the left uh, even when I was going to uh, university uh, at uh, Berkeley in the uh, 1970s, we're in a different situation. Yeah. In uh, in your book, and again, we're talking about um, revolutionary monsters, five men who turned liberation into tyranny. The book is published by Regnery History, and it's certainly worth reading, especially not just to, to learn the history. That's important, but to understand uh, some of the movements that we're seeing in our own uh, country today. But in the book, you place a lot of the blame for revolutions uh, on the established ruling elite. Now, one would assume that it would have been the established ruling elite that would want to hold on to things as they were. Can you explain um, the role that they played uh, in the revolutions that we're uh, talking about in the book, as well as the role they are likely to play or perhaps are playing here in this country as revolutionaries are attempting to do uh, something similar in disrupting our society? Well, one of the points I make in uh, Revolutionary Monsters, uh, all of these uh, monsters, uh, totalitarian monsters, Lenin Mao, uh, Castro, Mugabe, and Khomeini, all were university educated. In fact, they were uh, they became revolutionaries while at uh, university, Lenin a little bit earlier before he went to university. But all of them were university uh, educated. Mugabe actually was sent to a uh, university on a scholarship and funded by Christian missionaries. Mm. So the uh, so you know the idea that uh, that if we're all educated, we'll be enlightened isn't necessarily the case, is it? No, it is not. Um, some might suggest because you uh, focus on monster revolutionaries that this is a counter-revolutionary book. Let me ask you, because you touch on this in the book, was the American Revolution um, a revolution in this, the sense that you write about these monsters? Yes, uh, the very idea of revolution began, begins with a scientific astronomical concept of restoration. And so the American Revolution and the earlier uh, Glorious Revolution and later the Polish Revolution in 1989 were actually seeking a a restoration. The American Revolution was to restore the uh, individual rights of uh, Englishmen. The idea of uh, revolution, uh, as articulated by our founders, was to create a society and, uh, and political institutions that would allow for 
uh, equality of opportunity and the right to vote. It uh, took a long while for us to achieve mm-hmm. this uh, fully. We're still working, working uh, to make progress on many of the issues. But that's very different than a social revolution that's calling for social uh, equality. And uh, when you seek to create a perfect society, it only leads to uh, human tragedy. Uh, recent polls indicate that the majority of young people support socialism, that 20% believe all private property should be abolished and owned by the state. Um, have we lost a generation to socialism, and do they fully comprehend what those two things, if implemented, would actually mean for them personally? Well, I think we need to be uh, worried about this, and that's what inspired me to write the, uh, the book, Revolutionary Monsters. So I hope that uh, grandparents and parents will uh, buy copies for their uh, grandchildren and children and also uh, maybe buy a copy for your woke uh, neighbor who thinks that uh, social equity is a a really good idea. So uh, the question is, is whether we've lost that generation. I think it's uh, a toss up right now. Mm. Uh, Many young people just don't pay attention to politics at all. They're very apathetic and cynical toward it, maybe with good uh, cause. Uh, we do have uh, a number of activists, and as I show in Revolutionary Monsters, these activists uh, could become powerful forces. The Bolshevik, uh, so-called Bolshevik Revolution, is really uh, a coup d'etat with a few hundred uh, Bolsheviks in St. Petersburg uh, taking over the uh, provisional uh, revolutionary uh, government. So it doesn't take very many, uh, very many uh, people to undertake a revolution. And that was uh, Lenin's contribution to the very notion of a vanguard party, which was going to be uh, disciplined and would take orders from above. And Antifa, by the way, uh, should be considered a Marxist-Leninist organization. Uh, they're very uh, well organized. Uh, members have to go through intense indoctrination. Indoctrination. So it doesn't take very many to uh, activists and committed uh, cadre with revolutionary dreams to uh, undertake uh, transformation. I don't think we're going to see a political revolution, but what we are seeing right now is a quiet revolution in which uh, bad ideas have seeped into. Uh, and the left has taken control of nearly every major institution in our uh, society. So it's going to take, yes, please. I was just going to say, it doesn't take many to facilitate a revolution, but how many does it take who are apathetic, who uh, don't resist, who just allow it to happen? It seems to me it would take far more people to just uh, let it happen um, when you have a much smaller number who are the revolutionaries trying to change things. Yeah, well, the, uh, a small activist uh, cadre could direct uh, social discontent in ways that, uh, that prove uh, destructive. So we, with, we see uh, this, these, these activists beginning, and bad ideas beginning to take uh, effect as they've gained hold of our uh, educational institutions now going down to K-12. Uh, they've taken control of uh, mostly of media and 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 bless you for your good work uh, on the radio. They've taken control of uh, of um, of entertainment. All you do is have to watch TV or go to the movies and see how 
ideas uh, or bad ideas are slipped in. So we we have a we're uh, confronting, in my opinion, existential uh, crisis right now in our uh, country, and I think a lot of the the anxiety that's being felt is uh, is a correct anxiety. We're talking this afternoon about the book Revolutionary Monsters, Five Men Who Turned Liberation Into Tyranny. My guest is Dr. Donald Critchlow. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about revolutionary monsters, five men who turned liberation into tyranny. And my guest, author Dr. Donald Critchlow, a widely published historian who leads the program in political history and leadership at Arizona State University. The five are Lenin of Russia, whose monstrous dictatorship left a legacy of one-party rule, a police state, a failed economy, and Joseph Stalin. Mao of China, a revolutionary destroyer whose leadership led to the death of at least 42.5 million of his own people from famine and violence. Castro of Cuba, the megalomaniac who desecrated the economy, created a one-party police state with a surveillance system more uh, extensive than in Stalin's Russia. Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe, who created a one-power state that committed genocide against his people. And uh, Khomeini of Iran, whose goals, uh, death to all infidels, in heaven on earth vied with the uh, dream of Lenin, Mao, and Castro. Uh, his mystic beliefs about God and the state envisioned a heaven on earth when it was, in fact, just the opposite. This is an important book to understand where revolutionary minds in our own culture and in our time are attempting to lead us, and uh, perhaps we won't go blindly as so many others have gone before us. Do you see revolution coming today in America? And I know you've made a distinction between social and political revolution. Do you see it coming successfully and more broadly into our culture here in America? Well, I think what we're seeing, as I mentioned earlier, is that we're seeing a a quiet revolution, Mm -hmm. uh, a, a takeover. So I don't think the uh, I don't think we'll see a political revolution of uh, such violence, but we are seeing a, an expression of uh, kind of authoritarian uh, mindset by the uh, the left, and it's all about power and uh, control. You're a conservative faculty member at a university. What is that like for you? And are you encountering lots of uh, students who are, uh, to put it mildly, woke? Well, I, I uh, encounter many uh, woke students. We're seeing the effects of uh, K through 12 education, but there are many students uh, in my classes in Arizona State, uh, from all over the country who are uh, conservative. Uh, the Republican, uh, I'm the advisor to the college Republicans, and at their first meeting at the beginning of the semester, they had 80 students uh, show up. So I don't think it's a lost cause, and I don't think we're fighting against windmills. We can uh, we can win this with uh, if we all do our uh, jobs and talk to our neighbors and our community, get involved in our communities by running for school boards and supporting uh, good candidates. And we, if we all do our part, uh, then I think we can uh, we can uh, fight and uh, overcome what we're seeing. So I uh, I see my, this book. Revolutionary Monsters is just a small contribution to this general battle war that we have going on in our, in our country right now. The last chapter of your uh, book is titled Lessons Learned, and it's followed by a question mark. 
Um, I don't know if you're referring to your readers or to the culture in general. What should we learn from these five uh, monstrous revolutionary uh, leaders that might save us from going in a similar direction in our um, social revolution that we're in the midst of? Yes, I, uh, the, the two major points that I make, and I, these are the lessons that I, uh, that I offer in Revolutionary Monsters, is that bad ideas really do matter, and that we really need, and it begins with uh, education, and we need to be involved in our educational uh, system. I mean, parents obviously have a right to, uh, to complain about the kind of uh, racial division that's being uh, taught in our uh, schools. It's just not uh, critical race theory. It's everything that it's history being pushed through a lens that everything is about race. And then they're emphasizing that some people have whites have uh, privilege. So uh, whether you're uh, conscious, you know, so unconsciously you could be a racist. So bad ideas matter. And secondly, uh, the second point I make, and this is a major lesson, is that uh, elites can uh, fail us. And I think the, uh, the political, corporate, and uh, entertainment media elites are failing us uh, today. So we can change that by, uh, in multiple uh, ways, I think. And it all begins with citizen patriotic involvement. Yeah, absolutely. And making sure we, we've educated ourselves so that we can speak to revolutionaries in our own time in a way that's constructive. Um, where can our listeners buy a copy of Revolutionary Monsters? I think it's important for us uh, to read it ourselves and then to make it available, perhaps to others who have embraced the notion of revolution in our own um, country and our own culture. Well, this is a short book that's uh, readily available on audio as well as uh, uh, hardback, it could be ordered, and I, uh, I hesitate to suggest this, but Amazon, Barnes & Noble, it could be ordered online, but it also could be ordered uh, directly from the uh, publishers. So those, uh, those interested, and I hope uh, many people are, and it's just not about me selling books here. I think this is an important book. Uh, they can uh, just Google uh, Revolutionary Monsters and order the book and, uh, and, and begin to uh, give it as a uh, Christmas gift. So I want to wish you Happy Thanksgiving and a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday season for uh, all of your listeners. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for the book and for taking time to talk with us about it here today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I love your show, by the way. I've been on, I think, previously, and you do a great uh, interview. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Well, it's always good to have a great guest, so <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Happy Thanksgiving. You Bye-bye. too. Again, Dr. Uh, uh, Donald Critchlow, Revolutionary Monsters, Five Men Who Turned Liberation into Tyranny. And it is rather interesting, as I mentioned during our conversation, the Che Guevara uh, t-shirt, especially when I see black guys wearing this. Do you have any idea? This guy's a racist. Do you have any idea who he was, what he did, what he said? And the answer, quite frankly, is no. You know a thing or two, and you know you kind of like that thing or two, and you just assume uh, assume the rest. Well, this goes into greater uh, detail. And while we know a lot about some of these guys, maybe not the um, Ayatollah 
or uh, Robert Mugabe, we may not know as much about them as we think we know about some of the others, Lenin, Mao, and Castro. It really is a good refresher course, and then, as mentioned, to pass that along to others who may know even less. Uh, it, it feels a bit discouraging to see the direction that the nation is going, and you feel a little bit helpless. He mentioned that it only takes a small cadre of revolutionaries to be successful. When you think of the majority, if they resist that, then you know how many does it take? It doesn't take a whole... <laughs> doesn't take the whole population, but it te- does take some of us standing courageously and challenging the direction that we're going. He also made the point that, you know, parents have a role to play. Well, parents are now being demonized for trying to play that role. They are primarily responsible for their kids. They're responsible for understanding and approving their education. Well, the, the pushback right now is, no, you're not. Uh, you really don't have a role to play in all of this. Well, we need to resist that notion and say, yes, I do have a role to play in this and not simply throw up our hands and say that's uh, that's just the way it is. Anyway, revolutionary monsters, five men who turned liberation into tyranny. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I read with interest an article that was written by Michael Reagan, the son of former President Ronald Reagan, in which he um, ref- uh, reflects on a letter that his father had written to the future. And this is what Michael Reagan writes about his former president father. This week, I dug up an amazing and scary radio commentary my father delivered on September 1st, 1976. It was one of about 600 weekly nationally syndicated commentaries he wrote on yellow legal tablets during the late 70s. It described how he had decided what to say in a a letter to the future. He had been asked to write... Uh, for a time capsule to be opened in 2076 during the Los Angeles Bicentennial Celebration. He'd been asked to mention in the letter some of the most serious problems confronting the United States in 1976. In case you're too young to have been alive then, and I wasn't, I mean, I was alive, I'm not too young, uh, that's when the Soviet Union Empire uh, was truly dangerous and Americans were suffering from the effects of stagflation, high taxes, social unrest, weak leadership in Washington, and a spiritual malaise that fostered a sense of national pessimism. It sounds kind of familiar, 1976. Well, except for the year and a few details, many of those big problems from 1976 are back to torment us again today. Well, as um, Mr. Reagan, Michael Reagan's father, explained in his disturbingly timeless commentary, Writing that letter to the future became a rather complex chore. Think about it for a moment, he said. What do you put in a letter that's going to be read 100 years from now, in the year 2076? The people who will read it will be living in the world we helped to shape, he said. Will they read the letter with gratitude in their hearts for what we did? Or will they be bitter because the heritage we left them was one of human misery? Much of what my father said on the radio about what he put in this letter, again, quoting Michael Reagan, his letter to the future could have been written yesterday. He said the greatest problem the United States faced in 1976 was the choice between continuing the policies of the last 40 years that have led to bigger and uh, bigger government, less and less liberty, redistribution of earnings through confiscatory taxation, or trying to get back on the original course set for us by the founders. Will we choose fiscal responsibility, limited government, and freedom of choice for all our people? Or will we let an irresponsible Congress set us on a road 
our English cousins have already taken. The road to economic ruin and state control of our very lives. Meanwhile, he also said what, again, may soon be true today, thanks to the Biden administration's mishandling of the war in Ukraine. Again, quoting the former president. On the international scene, two great superpowers face each other with nuclear missiles at the ready, poised to bring Armageddon to the world. Those who read my letter, those who read my letter, the president, of course, speaking to those in the future, will know whether those missiles were fired or not. Either they will be surrounded by the same beauty we know, or they will wonder sadly what it was like when the world was still beautiful. Well, as we head for the midterm elections that conservatives hope will stop the uh, the crew from doing any more damage to the country, what Mr. Reagan, his father, said to conclude his commentary 46 years ago, he could now say again. If we here today meet the challenge confronting us, those who open that time capsule 100 years from now will do so in peace, prosperity, and the ultimate in personal freedom. If we don't keep our rendezvous with destiny, the letter probably will never be read because they will live in a world we left them, a world in which no one is allowed to read of, um, of the individual liberty or freedom of choice. This week, I used my father's warning to the future for a well-received talk I gave to 130 high school students at Young's High School or, or Young's American Foundation. It was a conference at the Reagan Ranch in Santa Barbara. I told those conservative leaders of tomorrow it's their job to make sure America remains a place that's peaceful, prosperous, and free so that their children will be around to read my father's letter in 2076. It was a rather interesting reflection, and it reminds us that the problems that seem today overwhelming and unique to our time are generally pretty much the same. Uh, the, the names and faces are the same, the inten- uh, are different, the intensity uh, may be different, but the issues are very similar. The same challenges faced in 1976 are being faced today, but perhaps without the strong foundation that was still in place on September 1st of 1976. The challenge is for us to uh, to take up the the gauntlet, if you will, and follow the lead that the former president uh, set and to seek to have a society in which we live peaceful lives so that what's most important to us, which isn't the status of the country, but what's most important to us, uh, being able to propagate the faith uh, will be permitted. Whether or not it's permitted, of course, will continue, but you get the idea. Again, Michael Reagan on my father's letter to the future, the future that has arrived. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank uh, James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. And if you haven't already signed up, please go to kpdq.com and join us. Register for the Pastor's Appreciation Breakfast coming up on Thursday, November 3rd. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.